Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Chris Van Tulliken. Chris is an infectious disease doctor at the Hospital of Tropical Diseases in London. He has a PhD in molecular virology from University College London, where he is an associate professor. His research focuses on how corporations affect human health, especially in the context of nutrition. And today, we're going to be discussing his new book, ultra-processed people. Why do we all eat stuff that isn't food and why can't we stop? Now, I received an early copy of the book, which I read in part on a very long flight to Japan last week. And the book is incredibly impactful. And I can honestly say that as a result of reading, even just after reading the first 100 pages, I already started to make some conscious changes to my food purchases. So I'm particularly interested in this conversation as someone who's worked in the well-being industry for 12 years now, I have seen a lot of trends and topics shift from certain diets and the impact of food on athletic performance, sleep, mood, and even life longevity. So as someone I'm always reading, listening and learning, I love it when I find a piece of work that makes me stop, question and even reconsider some of my own beliefs about health and well-being. So let's get into today's episode. Chris, welcome to the podcast. It's such a pleasure to be here. We've got so much to talk about. I'm really, I'm not sure we can do this in one hour, but we'll do our best. I think the best place to start actually would be to discuss, so the title of the book, Ultra Processed People. I'd really love if you could define for us what ultra processed food is, because I think some people might be surprised. Often the assumption about ultra processed food is that it's just junk food. So high sugar, high fat foods, such as ice cream or deep fried chicken. Mm -hmm. And it's fair to assume that most people know when they eat these kind of foods that they're highly processed but they might not consider that their breakfast granola is ultra processed or that their lunchtime salad wrap might be ultra processed so i think it's the best place to start could you tell us what is the definition of an ultra processed food so it's such a great point because so much of it is obvious junk but there's masses of ultra processed food that is organic uh, it's associated with weight loss, it's low fat, it's ethical, it's uh, allegedly good for us. Um, there's a very long formal definition, which you can look up on the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization website. Um, but it boils down to this. If it's wrapped in plastic and it contains at least one ingredient that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen, like an emulsifier or a colorant or a flavoring, um, then it is an ultra processed food. So it's it's that's it's a pretty straightforward way of looking at it. You just go to the supermarket, look at the ingredients, and if there's something there you don't recognise, then it is UPF. 
Yeah, and I think it's pretty shocking, actually, that often we don't really know what is in the foods that we eat. Because when you describe it like that, you say, okay, if you, if you open it out of a packet, it's probably processed. And people might think, yeah, but I don't eat that much ultra processed food. But honestly, when you start reading the book and you start breaking it down, you realize you probably eat more ultra processed food than you think. So, for example, if you read the ingredients of the back of something and the ingredients are listed, it's pretty useless if you don't know what you're reading. So for example, if it says modified starch or like you said, emulsifier or hydrogenated oil, if you don't know what modified starch is or emulsifier is, then how can we make an informed decision about whether or not we should be eating it? It, it, that's a it, that's such an important point. I mean, my, a, a really good rule of thumb is if you don't know what it is, then it's almost certainly an ultra processed ingredient. And the, there's a really important thing here to separate out processed food, which is fine, and ultra processed mm. food. So I think of this in terms of um, milk. If we start with milk, milk is a whole food. You can drink it straight out of the cow or the goat or the sheep, wherever you get your milk. And that's that's what we call a whole food. Now, you can process it into cheese or butter, and those, those products are fine as well. They're not associated with diet-related disease. The, the science is clear that cheese and butter are, are fine. You can ultra-process your butter into margarine. And this is what ultra-processed food is. It's fake versions of real food. Mm. So processing is fine. Humans have been processing food, which includes cooking, grinding, extracting, uh, frying, uh, uh, pounding, grinding. All that is processing. We've been doing it for over a million years. It's, it's a really important part of our diet. In fact, humans can't survive without processing food. We, we have to cook our food. You can't live on raw food. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of people have tried and you can't do it. <laughs> um, but ultra processing is a set of industrial processes. Some of them are physical. So you're grinding and extruding food. Some of them are thermal. You cook things at high temperature or you bleach, refine them, hydrogenate them. Lots of them are chemical. And then you, you take those foods that have been processed and you add lots and lots of additives to make them edible and, and more palatable. And so ultra processed food, the purpose of it is profit and that that is in that very long formal scientific definition is this is food not about nourishing the human body it's about generating profit for the transnational food corporations and that that's important Mm, yeah, very important. We're going to come on to talk about that a little bit later on, actually, when it comes to, yeah, why there's so much ultra processed food in the food system, why it is, you know, we'll talk about the cost part. But forgive me if this seems like an obvious question, but why should people be, you know, people listening to this podcast right now, why should they be concerned about how much ultra processed food is in their diet? So is it the problem that there's an absence of whole foods in your diet, or mm. is it the presence of ultra-processed food that causes an issue? So that that is a question that people have worked really, really hard to answer. What what we the, the definition of ultra-processed food was was it was it was developed as a hypothesis uh, about 13 years ago by a team in Brazil in 2010, and the hypothesis that what they were trying to do was describe the set of industrial foods that seemed to be driving diet-related disease. So that's strokes, heart attacks, metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, and early death, as well as loss of cancers. And so this, they came up with this definition. And then over the last decade, we've done a huge amount of research trying to figure out, it, was, the, was the hypothesis true? Is ultra-processed food associated with disease and death? And the studies are really, really clear that the association is very, very strong. So that in 2019, 
we realized there was a study that came out in the Lancet where we realized that diet was the leading cause of early death on earth for human beings. It had overtaken mm -hmm. tobacco. And ultra processed food is the way of defining what a poor diet is. And when we look at the data from the big population studies, it's not simply that this food is fatty and salty and sugary. And it's not simply that this food is displacing real food from the diet. It is partly that. It is that this food itself is harmful. Um, and it's harmful in a huge number of different ways. Well, I think it's interesting to highlight that because if I think about myself anecdotally, I knew that I was going to be having this conversation with you today. And as I said, reading the book recently, thinking about, okay, what things am I buying, especially when you're traveling because you're not in your own kitchen and cooking. So anecdotally, the reason I ask is because yesterday I was thinking, okay, what have I eaten today? And how much of the food I'm eating is whole food? How much of it's ultra processed? And yeah, is it kind of the case that, okay, if it's five to one is that a good ratio so i'll start mm. off like in the morning i won't bore you with my entire day of what i ate but no do it well in the morning i got up i had a banana really early i think it was before maybe before six o'clock had a banana fine about two hours later uh, i knew that me and my husband were going to be going out for a run we're doing the london marathon very soon um it was a short run and i thought actually i'm really hungry i'm gonna have a decent breakfast so i had a fried egg with some rocket half an avocado and a seeded bagel. So before 10 a.m., I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, banana, whole food, uh, the egg, like you say, processed because I fried it, rocket, great, avocado, great. And then the, the bagel, which is seeded, is uh, ultra processed food, right? So I'm looking at that and thinking it's kind of like, yeah, six to one, five to one, whatever. If I continued my entire day, as I said, I won't bore you with it, but in the evening I had, you know, a glass of red wine. I had some salted pistachios. I had these wasabi crackers that I got in Japan. They're ultra processed. And I was trying to, yeah, trying to like balance it out. And that's why I asked you about this. Is it the absence of, so for example, if someone says, well, it's fine, Adrienne, because you eat fruits and vegetables and you eat, you know, protein, mm. and you eat all these things and you cook your food from scratch most of the time. So what if there's an ultra processed bagel or a few biscuits or, and so yeah, is that kind of, is there a ratio people can figure it out? Or is it the case that actually all ultra processed food is bad and having it in your diet is going to cause issues for you? So, I think different listeners need different answers. There may be people, I'm guessing you you know your demographic and I'm guessing your, your audience is a pretty health motivated group who probably mm. aren't eating a huge amount of ultra processed food. However, there will be people who are listening who are living with obesity or living with overweight or living with other diet related disease. Um, mm. And for those people, it may be helpful to think of ultra processed food as a set of broadly addictive substances. And this was my relationship with it. So I have all the genetic risk factors for obesity. I have an identical twin who lived with significant obesity for a long time. Um, and so, and I found that there are certain ultra processed products that I had a really problem relationship with. You know, I'd spend time thinking about them. It was, I'd, I'd go and spend a lot of money on them. I would eat them to vast excess in spite of knowing they were bad for me. So for me, it's been really easy to go, look, I'm just not going to eat this. I, for me, it's like alcohol is to someone who has a problem with alcohol addiction or cigarettes mm. to a smoker. But there are plenty of people with alcohol who can go and have a couple of glasses of wine a week some people can smoke a few cigarettes on a, a you know on a on a on a friday night and not think about them on a monday morning so those people i think well, we have to be really careful when we're talking about this there are some people who are going to find it useful to be abstinent 
and other people who, you know what, you're having the old chocolate bar, don't sweat about it any more than you would sweat about having a glass of beer or, or, or I mean, I don't, I don't want to ever say that a cigarette is fine, but the, the data shows that if you're going to smoke one cigarette a week for a few years in your early 20s, it's, you know, it's, the addiction is the problem, not, not, mm. the single, not the single item. So it's, it's, it's very much different approaches for different people. In, in your case, I mean, you're someone who I'd be like, you should not be neurotic about this, right? Like I've, I've listened to your podcast. I've followed what you do. I've seen interviews with you. I know you're a runner. The fact that you ate an ultra processed bagel, it's, it's not going <laughs> to dramatically change your microbiome or affect your marathon performance. And it may also, it's worth saying, did you check the ingredients on that bagel? Is it like, do you know that it was ultra processed or because you can buy bagels that are, are fine. Mm. They're just wheat and water. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Especially, as I said, because I knew having this conversation with you, it wasn't from my local bakery. I won't say the, okay. the brand, but it was, you know, lots of different ingredients on there and I buy yeah. them quite frequently and they're delicious. And I think, you know what, looping back to what you said, of course, yes, I'm someone who's very physically active. I try to, you know, have a balanced diet. I try to sleep well. I'm very privileged in the sense that I have access and education. And like I said, we'll talk about costs in a little bit. But I think it's interesting that also you mentioned weight and saying people living with obesity or living with overweight. But sometimes we look at that as maybe like the defining outcome of health, which as we know, is mm. not the only one. So for people who might say, oh, well, I'm slim and oh yeah, I'm, I'm running or I go to the gym or people might assume that, oh, well, you can eat ultra processed food and it's not bad for you because they're slim. When actually, as we know, it probably impacts things like sleep or brain fog, concentration, gut, gut health. So yeah, I suppose with the ultra processed foods, if let's say someone's diet is like 50-50. They say, yeah, 50% of the time, I mean, whole foods, but half the time, because I'll be honest, some days mine probably tips way more the other way. So it might be that I've had a croissant in the morning instead of that banana. It might be that I've had, I don't know, gone out for a tie and I love, you know, noodles. And I've had, I'm sure I've had, you know, spring rolls, fried foods, like loads of the foods yeah. are probably ultra processed. And just because you're slim from the outward appearance, someone says, I'll eat what you want. Surely there's more to consider than just the size of our waistline. That is definitely true. And the, the science is very clear. When we look at, say, the risk of early death, um, so the, the most important outcome of all, arguably, it's an, it's in, when we look at the statistics of the data, it's independent of weight gain, i.e. exactly as you say, if someone like you who is you know, young and active and doesn't have a genetic predisposition to obesity, we, we don't imagine, um, if you eat a very high ultra-processed food diet, which many fit young athletic people do you are still putting yourself at risk of at increased risk of all those diet related diseases and this may affect different uh, minority group populations uh differently so particularly in south america or in in um in migrant populations in the uk we might see different risks for metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes for example and so we could have mm -hmm. someone who was slim but because of their diet was massively increasing their their risk of a disease for which they have already have a genetic propensity. 
Yeah, and that's something I've been very mindful of throughout my entire life, actually, because I have type 2 diabetes in my immediate family. So my grandmother, my father, and being from a Jamaican heritage, I've always had this, rightly or wrongly, this idea in my mind that people joke about, oh, Caribbean sweet tooth. But I always thought about my grandma and how much every, you know, she ate so many sweet things and she used to drink so many sweet drinks. And I remember when she, you know, got diagnosed with diabetes, how she had to change her diet. And then I watched my father do exactly the same thing. I think maybe in his 40s or 50s and so I was very conscious actually of sugar sugar was always a thing where I was a bit like oh I don't drink fizzy drinks I don't drink smoothies I don't drink fruit juice because I'm kind of like it's a glass of sugar whereas again other people are like you know it's just one thing don't demonize sugar um but I do want to move on actually and talk about cost because I mentioned you know that I'm fortunate or or I should say privileged I have the time and I have the money and the education Mm. to prepare food you know I can go and buy organic vegetables and fruits and shop locally and prepare food for myself and my kids and my partner and I think you know there's an undeniable unfortunately an undeniable link between wealth and health and in this country people living on a low income and potentially supporting a family right now potentially are shopping on a budget you know we're living through a cost of living crisis rising inflation continues to increase the cost of food so let's be honest, ultra processed food, we know that it's not only cheaper, but it's designed to last longer. It's conveniently Mm -hmm. prepared. So it takes less time and effort for us to cook. And yeah, I think you can understand why those with limited resources are going to be consuming more ultra processed food. And often those are people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds. So Chris, what do you think when, what's the one main thing I suppose that people should consider when it comes to ultra processed food alongside trying to shop on a budget? You know, in the UK, we spend on average about 7% of our household budget on food. That's on average. And the reason we spend that little is because all our money goes on rent and energy and transport. We live in a very, very expensive country with huge levels of inequality. And for people who live in the lowest 10% of households by income to eat a healthy diet, just one as recommended by the NHS, so never mind getting rid of ultra-processed food, they would need to spend more than 75% of their income on food, which is an impossibility. They wouldn't be able to pay for energy or rent. So I'm really conscious that whenever we talk about this, there is a huge risk of stigma, of stigmatising people who are already disadvantaged. And the tragedy is that really we live in a food apartheid. So people like you and I are the People like us are the people who are going to buy my book. They're going to be able to spend £20 on it. They're going to have the time to read it. And they're going to have a freezer to batch cook. And they're going to own knives and a chopping board. They're going to they're going to be able to cook and they're going to be able to afford that food. The people who are really, really affected are going to be absolutely unable to follow any advice, which is really why the book contains almost no advice about how to eat. I think everyone's mm-hmm. entitled to information. But what we know is that when you give people money, essentially, when when people have enough income, they don't buy this food anymore. So whilst Mm. there is a truth that someone like you or I, we do eat more of this food than we should. Our children are still at risk of diet-related disease far more than they were when I was young, uh, you know, 40-odd years ago. Um, The truth is we are dramatically less affected. And so if, if all we did was manage poverty and inequality properly, which would be straightforward to do it would not be politically easy but it can be done that would deal with 
probably most of the problem. If, if we solved poverty, we would get rid of about 60% of obesity overnight. So yeah, I don't have a really mm. strong answer. There's a lot of, there's a lot of information yeah. there, but the, the truth is these are, these are solvable problems, but they require mm. an entirely different approach to, to food and health than the one we have at the moment. Wow. Yeah. It's it's a bit disheartening, isn't it? And the thing is, the reason I think I can relate so much to this is because yes, right now, as I said, I have, you know, uh, the means and the access and the time and all the rest of it. But growing up, my mum didn't. So right. I grew up in a with a single mother in a low income household in the north of England. And my mum was very much on a budget. I actually don't know how she managed to make that budget, you know, feed everyone and clothes and school and everything. But the reality for her was it wasn't just about like you say, yes, there was a cost and a budget and what foods to buy but it was the time and effort and energy she did not yeah. have as a single mother with four kids and a full-time yeah. job and all the stresses of life she was not looking at a cookbook and thinking oh let me make this soup from scratch she was thinking what's quick what can I put in the oven or the microwave get on with what else I need to do you know the laundry the house the whatever and just feed everybody and keep everybody you know happy and it was kind of yeah, I think the missing piece when people think about inequality, especially with low income, is just, oh, well, these foods are cheap. You know, I've heard it so many times from the kind of well-being oh, gurus. Oh, buy turnips, that, well, buy lentils, Yeah, carrots are porridge. cheap, exactly. Yeah. Baked beans are cheap. And I'm like, do you understand the difference that in terms of, yeah, just the, I think the emotional strain of poverty and the emotional strain of having to make daily choices that impact our health. It's a big, big part that's often overlooked. And how did you, do you mind me asking, like how, did, how did you eat when you were a kid? Was it a lot of ready meals um, through necessity or did your mum cook? Um, you know what? She did cook at the weekends. She always says she's a terrible cook and we kind of joke. I think that's why I, I'm, I say I'm a good cook is because I had to learn to cook at age 12 because it was basically like my mum's food. We were just like, this is inedible. So I learned to cook. But um, yeah, during the week, during the week, it was definitely a lot of, I remember using the microwave for everything. So I used to do a baked potato in the microwave. I used to do beans in the microwave. I used to do porridge in the microwave. I just remember using the microwave every single meal, which I mean, probably sounds horrific, but I don't remember thinking that our diet was terrible terrible because in my mind it was like well we don't eat mcdonald's or, or kfc or we're not having takeaway pizza because my mom for my mom used to say fast food and takeaway food is too expensive she's like dream on you're not having takeaway so it was kind of like i don't know i can't really and i i, I definitely remember having you know the basics like kind of apples oranges bananas you know there's a fruit bowl but we also had a lot of i remember having you know crisps chocolate biscuits and one staple of my childhood my memory that me and my siblings still laugh about is that before bed we we used to drink we used to drink Nesquik milkshake now for anyone oh. who knows what I'm talking about it's like a fluorescent you know if you get the banana one it's fluorescent the pink yellow. one or the yellow um, one yeah the yellow one and it was great and I loved it and I remembered like you're supposed to, I think the I think the monkey recommends two teaspoons now I used to make this myself age 12 and I used to use tablespoons <laughs> and I used to stir it up and it was the sweetest thing it's literally like drinking syrup and I probably drank it with cow's milk which I don't really think suits my body I don't really drink a lot of dairy anymore because I don't know it doesn't suit me so I'm drinking this cow's milk Nesquik every night before bed every night it was my it was my like go-to before bed drink which now i'm just like how did i not have 
how did I have teeth? Because just the sugar content alone is horrific. But then I don't know, sometimes reflecting back on that and thinking, well, actually, that's how I grew up. And, you know, I yeah, my diet was far from perfect. And then I look at what my children and my stepchildren eat. And I sometimes, you know, think, gosh, Adrienne, are you really stressing out about, you know, oh, they've had too much jam because it's too much sugar. And then you think actually 90% of their food, I'm giving them, you know, homemade porridge and there's blueberries and bananas and we've got avocado. And I'm kind of thinking, actually, Adrian, just chill out. Like, it's probably fine. <laughs> I think that's the chill out is so important. I mean, to me, what what's really essential in, in the discussion about food is there are just things I don't really want to say that you, you, you speak with such a different voice to me to, 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 and you'll be able to connect with different people in a different way that there are so many people that it's completely inappropriate for me to start telling them how to live. But, and, and so that's why I hold back on a lot of advice, but I think your kind of reflections on how you grew up and your solutions and your workarounds, I mean, that there's, there are some really great voices out there who are communicating clearly to people who live with low incomes about how they can eat well, because I, it's a very ticklish thing, isn't it? You, you don't want to say there's nothing that can be done. But from a policy perspective, when I speak to government, I, I think the really important thing that my voice can do is to say you can, it is not for government or for me to tell people with low incomes that they should find these workarounds. You know, that's completely unjust. Someone's got to tell them. But in the meantime, the mm -hmm. government has to be working hard to reorganise the food system. Yeah, I agree. But I also think, Chris, that, you know, you are someone with incredible knowledge and education and expertise. And I think that actually I know what you mean when you say, oh, I'm kind of maybe reluctant to kind of stand here and say, this is what everyone should do. Listen to me. However, I would argue that we need education, I think, is the first pillar. So before, you know, action and imp I, I talk a lot about advice. OK, so how can you give mm. people actionable advice that they can implement into their life? Then it's down to the individual, of course, to have, you know, deliberate action and repetition to create better habits but the first point is education if i read a book about sleep maybe if i start to action some changes and you know repetition maybe i can start to change my habits around sleep but i have to start with education so i understand your reluctance but i also think you have this knowledge you have a voice you have you've written this incredible book and i think I, I don't know. I would just say, don't be afraid to tell people the truth because sometimes let's be honest, we don't want to hear it. You know, I've worked in the fitness industry for 12 years. People don't always want to hear the truth, but it's up to them once they have that knowledge to try to say, okay, what can I do with this information? I think that's right. So my approach is that people have a right to truth to, and to information and a right to be free from false information, to be free from a lot of the marketing. Um, and so my approach is very much Here's some information, but I don't understand your life, your community, your situation, your income, your budget. So I'm not going to give you advice. And I think I learned this sort of the really hard way with my brother, who I nagged for, for, for 10 years while he was, he was very big. And essentially for him to lose weight would have been to lose an argument with me. And so I'm, mm. I'm, I'm pretty soft on, on doing that. With you, I think, people come to you they are, they are empowered to come to you and get what they want. And, and they've, they've arrived in this space going, okay, I'm, I'm up for this. Tell, tell me what to do, Adrienne. And, um, mm. and, and so this is a forum where that's, that's acceptable. And you're someone who can speak with a really legitimate voice about where you've come from and where you've ended up. And I think mm. 
my my I see my role in the food discussion as very much uh, critiquing industry, critiquing government, critiquing the medical profession, and giving people the best information I can. But I don't mm. think my role is to tell anyone what they should do. You know, I'm I'm very much against normative statements. So I mean, we were talking. Yeah. You know, you talked about your kids. I don't think this. I don't think this food should be banned. I don't think this food should be taxed. I think it should be appropriately labelled. I think it should be in the government guidance that we should have a greatly reduced intake. And I think all the monkeys and tigers should be taken off the packets. But mm. I, I don't want to restrict anyone's input. And my kids do eat this, so you know. We we sometimes buy cheap bread and beans with some additives and a few fish fingers and that's an acceptable meal, you know, once or twice a week. It's fine, you know. That, mm. That's not going to hurt my kids. The difficulty is when breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day consist of things that really don't have any hold food in them at all. Yeah, yeah, and of course, it is incredibly nuanced and it's incredibly um, complex. This conversation, and I'm I'm grateful to you for you know saying what you kind words about this platform and about myself as a host but again I suppose on the other side I often think you know you're the expert I'm the host I come to sit down at the mic and I get to have these wonderful conversations with people like yourself to extract that knowledge and to share it with people and some people might say to me well who are you to tell people how to live but essentially I'm just saying you know anecdotally I'll often say this is what works for me this is what makes me feel good this is what I'm trying I'm not perfect I'm trying my best but also I can introduce you to all these experts and we can siphon their knowledge so with that in mind so Chris my, yeah. I feel, go, go on go yeah. on no no you're right you're right I'm such a reluctant expert because I think <laughs> I take it I, feel, I mean because when I see my patients they come to me with problems you know I work at UCLH uh, in the tropical diseases unit and my patients have insolvable problems very often their infections and their difficulties come from the structural violence in our world and uh i, I can't fix a lot of that so i've i've you know the more senior i become and the more i know the more i'm like look i here's some information do what you can i'm cheering for you but uh but with yeah. with with the with the book i guess my invitation to the reader in the book. So rather than giving everyone advice, my invitation is approach, if you struggle with this, if you find that you're sort of drawn to these foods, it's very much um, eat the food whilst you read the book. So in some respects, there's a, there's a great book called The Easy Way to Quit Smoking. And it's it's got loads of scientific evidence behind it. So the World Health Organization actually recommend this book. And the book book's quite straightforward. You just smoke while you read the book and the book is about how bad for you smoking is. And by the end of the book, you don't want to smoke anymore. And this happened to me while I was writing the book. And so I, I study this food. I work in infant nutrition um, uh, with the World Health Organization. So I do a lot of this research formally. But as I started to study ultra-processed food and I spoke to the scientists, there was a sudden moment where I sat down. I'd been speaking to this person from Brazil called Fernanda Rauba, and we'd spoken for a couple of hours. And I sat down that night to eat some um, fried chicken wings from a from a takeaway place, and I I could they they'd been my favourite food my whole life. So these were these were these spicy wings. I couldn't eat them. They tasted the same, mm. but so, she'd flicked some switch in my head. So my invitation to the reader is to go look, eat while you read. In, you know, read your ingredients. If the yogurt has xanthan gum in it, see if you can taste that xanthan gum, which is a bacterial exudate. And see how you feel about that being in your log yogurt. If you're drinking things with artificial sweeteners, you should know what they're doing to your metabolism. 
If you're eating food with emulsifiers, you should know what they're doing to your microbiome. And so most people who've read the book sort of had this experience of by the end of the book, it's it's not that they feel guilty because they're they're trying to stop eating this food. It's more like they stop wanting the food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely agree. I said that to you at the start, right? So even in the first few chapters, I remember saying, I was telling my husband about it and he was like, he's same thing. It's not like saying to someone, you mustn't eat these foods. They're now banned. You're just reading it thinking, Ooh, that doesn't actually sound so appetizing. And that, like you said, it kind of turns you off. So in a good way, I'd say if you want to be turned off from some of these ultra processed foods, then yes, dive in. And I guarantee you, you'll start to, yeah, you won't want to eat those foods anymore because you kind of, yeah, I won't go as far as to say they'd be, that they are repulsive, but you do start to see them in a very different way. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. But something I want to talk to you about, Chris, because so far it's been, you know, we're getting on. It's all, you know, nicey-nicey. But when I was reading the book, and I've been very complimentary of it, I've already told lots of people they need to read this book. I'll be honest, there was one part that came up for me and I was like, okay, he's lost me now. This is (laughs) ludicrous. I refuse to believe it. This is just, you know, so let me explain. I would love for you to tell me where and how I am getting it so wrong when it comes to exercise and nutrition. So Uh. for many of the the listeners of the show will probably know that I used to be a professional dancer. So I trained for years, you know, growing up. I used to be a personal trainer. I was a fitness coach. I'm an endurance runner now. So, you know, I've worked with so many trainers. I've worked with professional uh, athletes. I've interviewed Olympic athletes on the show and I worked at a fitness technology company for four years. So this is not a humble brag. I'm just saying this to kind of caveat that I feel as though I know a it's little a bit brag. about exercise. <laughs> you know what I mean? Listen to me. Yeah. But I think I know a little bit about exercise and I have seen and experienced the impact that exercise has on people, both mentally and physically. So it's not all about, you know, six pack abs and low body fat percentage. It's, you know, but different types of exercise, for example, strength training versus low intensity cardio. I know Mm -hmm. the different impact that this can have on our body shape and size. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to energy expenditure, how many calories we consume to fuel our daily movement or to fuel those lifting those weights or running that race. Surely it has to have a direct effect in our body's ability to use the calories we eat to produce the energy required to move. Now, I know it's not as simple as calories in, calories out, but I felt like as I read the part in your book that kind of said, doing more exercise doesn't allow you to just eat more calories whilst maintaining the same body weight. It just didn't make sense to me. And I was like, Chris, where have I got it so wrong? What is going on in this argument between exercise as a a way of burning the fuel that you eat? So when I started writing the book, the the thesis I present in the book is that um, really all of this pandemic of obesity and all of diet-related disease is because of ultra-processed food. But there's this, there was this question niggling away in my mind that, how much of it, how much of our, our gain, weight gain is to do with the, the, the simultaneous epidemic of inactivity and lack of exercise that none of us do very much. 
And all the experts were saying to me, no, look, it really is all the food, but I wasn't getting a, a clear explanation. So I really started digging into this. And since the 1990s, we've been really, really clear. There's been some very, very good science, and this is completely counterintuitive, that when you do exercise, you do not burn more calories per day. So um, the way I think about it, that the, the strongest data is that if you and I, uh, Adrian, we went and lived in Tanzania and we lived as hunter-gatherers. So some studies were done on a community there called the Hadza. And if we went and lived with them and we uh, chased game and gathered food and ground up everything ourselves and um, walked, you know, 20 kilometers per day, we would not burn any more calories per day than we would living in London you know, I mean, you're more active than me, but, you know, I fundamentally have a desk job. You don't more burn more calories to every, each day when you're pregnant. You don't more burn more calories when you're breastfeeding. Um, you really can't affect the number of calories you burn per day over the long term. Um, and this is the, the data on this is so, so crystal clear and so robust. It's been done so many times using a very sophisticated te technique called a, a double water labeled method. And uh the way it works, the reason that exercise is so good for you is, let's say I, I, I'm going to spend 2,500 calories today, no matter what I do. OK, so I might go for a run or I might just sit at my desk all day. Now, if I go for a run, I will spend some calories running. But after I've been for the run, I have fewer calories to spend on anxiety, on inflammation, on reproductive hormones that um, uh, potentially drive cancers. And so I'm taking that budget from from those harmful activities and I'm spending it running, but I'm not changing the number of calories I burn. And so that's why we think exercise is good for us, because it it spends calories in a way that we've evolved to spend calories. And if we don't do the exercise, we spend those calories worrying and inflaming ourselves and aching and um, and and uh, on anxiety and, and stress. And that's how our calorie budget is spent. And so this is very good, robust science. This isn't a crackpot theory. So the big question is, why do you, an expert, not know this? And why did I not know this until I started to write a book? And the reason is that the Coca-Cola Corporation funded thousands of papers saying that if you do lots of exercise, uh, you can redress your energy balance and you can take in lots of calories and then you can burn those calories off. They funded science. They funded whole institutes. They funded a global energy balance network and they funded a partnership with the American College of Sports Medicine called Exercise is Medicine. that was rolled out across the United States. So we have the most powerful soft drinks corporation in the world funding science and promoting partnering with these kind of very respected institutions, the American College of Sports Medicine, and selling this message that when you go for a run, you know, you burn a couple of hundred calories, and you can enjoy that then in the form of a, a soft drink, you know, you've kind of spent that energy. And it's completely untrue. And so um, th this was actually quite widely reported. So I spend a chapter in my book explaining that one of the reasons we're all so confused about food is because the way we understand our body and nutrition and calories and metabolism has come to us via the Coca-Cola Corporation. And it's they're one of the few brands I'm, I'm comfortable naming them on this podcast because all that's mm. been through the, the lawyers at, at Penguin who published my book, um, uh, as well as lots of other lawyers. So, um, yeah, the way you yeah, and oh. I, you know, with all your expertise and my medical degree, the way we understand our body comes from, from Coke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, because I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, okay, you're the 
you know, you don't want to say you're an expert, but you you are the expert. And this is not the first time, I'll be honest, that I've heard this because Professor Tim Spector has also been on the podcast. He talks about this as well. And I've also heard people talking before fitness coaches saying that the reason that, for example, when you increase your activity significantly, let's say you sign up for your first race and you say, I'm going to run a 10K. And so Mm. you may have never run before and you start each week saying, okay, today I'm running for 10 minutes. And that 10 minutes becomes 20 and that 20 becomes an hour. And eventually you might be running for an hour, twice, three times a week, maybe more if you're training for a, you know, a marathon, for example, but you don't suddenly waste away. So what they will say is that you exercise, you spend calories, you spend energy, you then your appetite increases and you replenish that energy because you've hmm. burnt off calories. And I can kind of understand, okay, that makes sense. You've, you've expelled some energy. Your body's going to say, hello, I'm hungry, refuel. And some people actually say they eat far more when they're exercising and they don't lose weight because they're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm exercising more, so I'm more hungry, so I'm eating more. I totally understand that. But what I think is kind of, I think the problem I have, I suppose, with this, and this is why I wanted you to kind of, yeah, correct me where I'm getting it wrong, is that I think sometimes people will take a reductive message that says exercise isn't going to change your metabolism or your calories or your body. And I just... I don't know. I think, as you rightly said, we already live in a world where most people are inactive. We know that, you know, one in six deaths in the UK is caused by physical inactivity. And globally, mm-hmm. one in 10 early deaths could be prevented if everyone completed 75 minutes per week, which is half mm. the current government guidelines. So I just don't want people to hear that kind of message and go, oh, I don't need to exercise and throw the baby out with the bathwater because 100%. as we know, exercise is so important. So I, uh, it, it, I think the really important thing is that the truth is, first of all, there's a slight caveat. When you were doing your dancing at at such a high level or when you're doing your marathon training, at the very elite level, when you're cycling in the Tour de France or you're doing Arctic exploration, you you can burn more calories and you do have to eat more. But for the kind of exercise, just for long term daily activities, even if you're doing a lot of keep fit, you really aren't changing the calories you burn unless you change your body composition. So if you lose a lot of weight, you will actually start burning fewer calories. As we get older, we burn fewer calories. Sexes burn different calories. So to me, what's really important is if someone wants to try and lose weight, what's really unfair is if they think I'm doing all this running, I'm going to the gym. The machine at the gym says I burned 350 calories on this hour of exercise. Why am, and I didn't eat uh, an energy buy after, uh, bar afterwards. Why am I not losing weight? To me, it's really important that people understand exercise is the best medicine you can possibly do. It protects you from death, from dementia, from heart disease, from strokes, from metabolic disease. It makes you live longer and makes you live better, but it will not change the number of calories you burn in a day, so you cannot use it to lose weight. The only way, if you're going to lose weight, the only way of losing weight is to, uh, is in my opinion, is to stop eating ultra-processed food because all diets that incorporate ultra-processed food are likely to continue to drive weight gain. So, mm, yes, I, yeah. I, it's all it's counterintuitive. Exercise is amazing. I would never want anyone to stop exercising or be inactive. But if you think it'll help you lose weight, I'm I'm afraid all the evidence is very clear that it won't. 
Mm, okay well happy to put a pin in that thank you and yeah i think the last point you made about the ultra processed food part i think again i know that's what this conversation is about but just as a really obvious example it is so easy to overeat ultra processed food and for me i think about the ultra processed foods that i love the most it is so easy like i really love popcorn i really love um crisps you know like plain salty crisps Mm -hmm. and i feel Mm -hmm. like if you're for example if i've had a meal and i'm in the evening and i'm satiated i'm not hungry i don't feel the sensation of hunger but it's the evening and i want to have a snack you can eat so much of that food when if you think for example okay i'm only going to eat exclusively whole foods so i'm not going to limit what i eat or how what time or you know there's all these rules and restrictions around food i'm going to eat whatever i want whenever i want as long as it's a whole food you're not going to sit down and eat 10 bananas or you know 10 often you just have what you need to be satiated and full and then you'll stop eating and i think that's obviously you know again not to make the whole conversation about weight there's so many other things that it's going to impact in terms of our you know physiological health but i do think that's just uh, yeah maybe a clear way for people to think about well actually yeah you're you're far more likely am i right to kind of over overeat and overindulge in ultra processed food because it's literally made for that exact reason I think that is exactly the way of putting it. This is food that is engineered to be overconsumed. And there was a very brilliant study done in the States, a, a really good quality trial, where they got a big group of people, they split them in half, and half the group for two weeks ate uh, an ultra-processed diet, and half the group ate an unprocessed diet. They ate those diets for two weeks, and they had as much food as both both groups of people had as much food as they wanted. They had available to them 5,000 calories a day. And they rated, both groups rated each diet as equally delicious. And the diets, most importantly, were matched for sugar, fat, salt and fibre. So nutritionally, the two diets were identical. The only difference was the processing. And then at the end of two weeks, the group swapped over and ate the opposite diet. When people were on the ultra-processed diet, they ate 500 calories more per day. Okay, so a massive amount more. When people were on the unprocessed diet, so just a a normal healthy diet, still a huge amount of calories available to them, rated equally delicious, they all lost weight. So satiety, the feeling of fullness, really doesn't come from the number of calories you eat. It's very much more about the quality of those calories. And ultra-processed food has been engineered in lots of very clever ways to be consumed to excess because that is the way that you sell more food. It's very straightforward. Mm. And it's more efficient, isn't it? As I said, I mentioned a few times that I went to Japan. It was incredible. I've never been to Japan before. Um, but as I said, when you travel, I feel like it's much harder or, or it just feels more obvious that you're buying lots of yeah. packaged things, you're opening lots of packets. And someone did say to me, they were like, yeah, but surely Japan, you know, it's super healthy. You know, you must be just eating sushi. And and I kind of said, well, yeah, I guess in some ways, but in other ways, efficiency, you know, Japanese are very efficient. And efficiency, I was very aware that literally anything you wanted to buy in a kind of convenience slash food store was all ready to, it was ready. And what I mean by that is I couldn't buy an apple, okay, for my son, but I could buy a bag, a pl- like a, you know, clear bag that had sliced apple pieces inside and I couldn't buy an orange but I could buy uh, like a little pot that had orange and jelly and like there was all these kind of things where I was kind of like I can get fruit but I just want 
at just the whole fruit, you know, just want the whole thing. And I think this efficiency piece where we're trying to move the world, you know, humanity, everything from innovation and tech and everything towards efficiency, it's almost like we've kind of lost the plot when it comes to food. And it's just like, how can we get this in the quickest, most convenient like shelf life forever um as opposed to actually you know let's be honest if you just grow something or bread i think is a good example like bread used to get mold on it in like two days if it's that out mm. now you can keep it for two weeks and it's still mm. fresh you're thinking what's going on in this bread when i've had it in the cupboard for two weeks and it's got no mold on it so yeah i think this move towards efficiency is uh it's dangerous and the thing is we could talk well i certainly could talk to you about this for the entire day but i'm conscious that we will sadly have to conclude soon so i've got one one more food question for you before we conclude the show. Um, and that is about the future of food because I'm a self-confessed futurist. I'm always looking ahead and trying to identify signals of change and predict how things are happening today and how they could potentially impact our lives tomorrow. And I guess I also want when people listen to this show and they tune in for them to listen to these conversations and of course have, you know, uh, ideas and maybe get inspired or you know, plant a little seed, but also to think about action and things they can actually do. So it's pretty clear from the book and from this conversation that a diet high in ultra processed food is not good for our physical and mental health. It's not good for our weight. It's not good for the planet. So where could we potentially go from here? Let's say, could you give us maybe two scenarios? So option A is we continue with this, a diet high in ultra processed foods. What what is the outcome, I suppose, going to be if we just look down the line 10 years versus scenario B, which is we limit our intake of ultra processed foods as an individual listening to this show today. Could you kind of outline for us those two alternatives? We're kind of we are going to live out these two alternatives. So we have a food apartheid at the moment where one group of people in society are going to eat better and better and better. People more or less like you and I. And the peculiar thing about our food system is that it can furnish you and I with the most extraordinary range of fresh fruit, vegetables, whole grains, seed, pulses, the full rainbow Mediterranean diet. Um, and it's, it's affordable for us, you know, and we can eat it every single day of the year. Simultaneously, the the counterfactual, the other experiment, is going to be run in the increasing number of people who live uh, with extreme disadvantage in, in, in real poverty. And this is particularly true in the UK. And what we will see in those communities is partly effects on physical and mental health. So this food has very real risks um, to, uh, I guess, diseases like dementia, so organic brain disease, but also rates of anxiety and depression. We know that lots of additives affect attention. So we're going to see that those gulfs widening. Uh, we're going to see increases in metabolic disease and obesity. And we're going to see a loss of food culture. So to me, this is the sort of greatest tragedy is that particularly in our migrant populations, um, for the last, let's say, 100 millennia, Food has been invented by primarily female scientists working in kitchens who've been combining new molecules in incredible ways with this motivation to nourish their children, their families and their friends. And we have had then this kind of wonderful array of traditional foods from around the world that have been invented. And within a few generations, a very small number of extremely powerful transnational food corporations are going to destroy those millenniums of knowledge. And it's going to start with, in a sense, with the people with the richest food culture of all. Um, 
And unless government and doctors and scientists step up to their obligations, this is the future we're going to see. Some some people are going to have a an increasingly rich future, and other people are going to have a um, a terribly food insecure culture, uh, food insecure uh, future. More than that, though, we're all going to be affected because the current food system, which has to produce ultra processed food as its main product, is the number one cause of loss of biodiversity. It's the second leading cause of carbon emissions. So we are eventually all going to start suffering. You know, it might be for my kids, it might be toward the middle or toward the end of their lives. But when we have replaced all of the tropical forests with soy and palm plantations, those soy and palm plantations are going to stop working because the forests create the rain that the plants need. And we won't be able to irrigate because the rivers are also created by the rain. So the food security that even that you and I enjoy at the moment will eventually destroy itself and we will all succumb to being victims of the kind of planetary effects of UPF. So the first thing is governments have to step up and very delicately regulate these corporations. We can learn lessons from tobacco. We can't tax this food. This is essential food for, for most people in this country. It's the only available food. So we're going to have to approach this with kindness, with nuance, without generating stigma. But we have to make real food more available because we, we can't go on increasingly processing the food and claiming that it's going to make us healthier. Food is too complex to synthesize. Yikes. Gosh, yeah, Yikes I think that's indeed. even without... Was that too you know, gloomy? That's a, no, I mean, you know, this is what is reality. This is the thing is what I said about truth is that sometimes people don't want to hear it, but that's even without, you know, the conversation around animal agriculture, climate change, and the idea that some places are going to be so inhospitable for animal, you know, from heat, that we're not going to have these animals to eat in the first place. So yes, there's a lot of doom and gloom, but I also think that, like I said, education and knowledge i think is important people deserve to know and be able to make with whatever you know uh, resources they have available to them to be able to at least feel like they can make informed decisions for themselves for their shopping for their children uh, for you know as i say within the means and the resources that they have i think i think if people are incredibly resourceful you know we we live at a moment in in history where um life is so expensive and uh the people in power have for a long time had very little regard for people and there is a there is a general belief particularly around obesity that the people who live with it are really to blame and that is absolutely untrue and i i do think that when people are in possession of the information when they can tell what ultra processed food is they understand how it interacts with their body and all the health effects that it has i think people are pretty resourceful at going well I don't appreciate being told by a politician that I should eat turnips, but you know what? I actually can do something about this myself. And children, the other thing we know about kids is kids don't want to eat this necessarily. So kids kids were really important for stopping grown-up smoking. You know, it was it was more your generation than mine that nagged. I, mean, I remember nagging my dad to stop smoking cigarettes. And when we label ultra-processed food, and this has been done in Chile and other uh, South and Latin American countries, when it's labelled, kids tell their parents to stop buying it. Kids worry about their parents' health. So there's mm. lots of reasons to think that young people today, they're very scientifically literate, they're activists, and I think they're going to see that this 
this is a worthy crusade. You know, there are, there are these synergistic pandemics of obesity, malnutrition and climate change. They're all working together. They're all because of our current food system. And there is a way of tackling this. Mm. Yes. Well, that is a bit more optimistic, isn't it? And I agree that the younger generation are activists. My son is almost 11 now. And I remember, I think it was maybe his seventh birthday, so pre-pandemic. And he was inviting maybe six or seven children to this party. And I'd think 50% of the um, children that came were vegetarian. Now, really, when yeah. I was seven years old, yeah, when I was seven years old, I didn't know any of my friends that were vegetarian. And when I, you know, asked most of them, it's not, it's not because of their parents. The parents aren't actually vegetarian. It's, it was their choice because they're reading, like you said, yeah. or they're learning about the planet yeah. and the climate and animal. And they're saying, you know what? I don't want to eat that. So yeah, it's very, very interesting. And maybe the optimism can, um, and maybe I love the optimism. that example. That really, uh, that really, really makes me feel optimistic. If the seven-year-olds have mm. decided they... They want to eat less meat for whatever reason. I feel like, you know, there's a bit of hope there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So my final question for you, I've absolutely loved this conversation. And at the end of every show, I ask every guest about their power hour, which is essentially the first hour of their day. Now, I know that you're a parent, you're a professor, you're a TV broadcaster, you are a busy guy. So can you tell us typically what time does your day start and what does the first hour of your day include? So my youngest daughter, Sasha, starts my day when she wants. It is entirely up to her. And some days it's at 7.45, other days it's at 5.45. And my routine is to do um, five press-ups and five sit-ups. And, and that, that's my kind of, that's, that's you know, that, that's my power hour is, is to do those two things. And normally when I'm, when I'm on the floor, I usually do 10 and then I do 10 of each and then I do a few other stretches and exercises. Um, and then the first hour of my, and I try and make that almost a kind of just an article of faith. That's a, that's a kind of religious experience for me because if if I've, I've set that bare minimum task and I, I try and I you know some days you forget or whatever but but most days I'm pretty good about that and then the diary's so variable because I do academic work I do hospital work I do broadcasting so you know some days I'm getting an early train to Liverpool to film Operation Ouch other days I'm trying to write a paper some days I've got an early interview you know it it's really variable but my my power hour is is press up, sit ups, and coffee, and uh, and it's dictated then by the girls. It sounds great. It sounds great. And I can nothing left to say really, but thank you so much for joining us, for giving us your time. I've really loved it. As I said, I know that the book is available twenty seventh of April. Am I right? That is correct. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. And it was so. It was. Can I say this was just such an informed conversation. I don't often get to speak to people who make you know. Normally I sort of get asked questions and you've really sort of made me, I don't know, forced me to, to think about these these issues and how I communicate about them. And it, it is, talking about food is just such a, a struggle with stigma and judgment and moralising and snobbery. And um, mm. it's great to, to speak in a forum where that feels like less of a risk. Oh, well, I really appreciate you coming on the show and hopefully uh, it hasn't put you off because I'd love to have you back in the future. I'd love that. Well, we're doing lots more studies and there's there's loads more to say about all of this. But um, yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. Fab, as always, everyone, thanks for tuning in and I'll be back next week with another episode.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.